You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season eight, episode two. Patrick Otuma is an Irish poet and theologian whose work centers around themes of language, power, conflict, and religion. His poetry and prose has been published widely across Ireland, the US, and the UK. For Otuma, religion, conflict, power, and poetry all circle around language, that original sacrament. In the context of public theology, he takes the received form of biblical texts and explores the civic and artistic dynamics of language, narrative, and impact in these stories. Padraig is a voice for LGBT inclusion and for the value of arts in public life. He presents Poetry Unbound with On Being Studios, a podcast that explores a single poem in each episode. Today on Makers and Mystics, I have the honor of sharing a recent conversation with Padraig on his background as a poet, theologian, and how the arts and language play a central role in reconciliation and conflict resolution. This was one of those conversations that lingered with me long after the moment had passed. In fact, our conversation lasted well over the length of these episodes. I find Padraig's work in language and conflict resolution to be a vital contribution to finding a way forward through our current cultural moment. Patrons of the podcast can enjoy the full unedited interview with Padraig at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. This is my conversation with poet and theologian Padraig Otuma. Padraig, thank you so much for joining me on the Makers and Mystics podcast. It's an honor to have you on the show with me today. Oh, it's lovely to be with you. I've listened to a few of the episodes, and so it's been really nice to hear your voice and other people's voices um, in the ones I've listened to. Wonderful. I've been following your work as a poet and as a theologian, and of course your work as a fellow podcaster with On Being and Poetry Unbound. And I'd love to start our conversation learning more about your background as a poet Tell me how poetry and the love of words came to take such a central place in your life. When did this happen for you? I see that poetry has been part of my life since I was young. Um, the Irish education curriculum has a lot of emphasis on poetry. Um, so we were learning poems off by heart in two languages from the age of five every week. And, you know, for your final exams at 17, you are expected to know 80 or 90 poems in both languages off by heart to be able to answer questions from them. Mm -hmm. You'd be given questions, but you wouldn't be given the text. And you're supposed to be able to quote accurately from those. That doesn't make everybody a poet, but it does mean that people who have an interest in poetry are surrounded by it. Um, I'm reading through W.B. Yeats's work at the moment and I realise how many of his poems I know because from the age of five or six we were learning some of W.B. Yeats's poems, sometimes the more accessible ones, but not always. You're learning ones that you simply couldn't understand unless you're in midlife and we were learning to recite them at the age of eight because the language sounded like it was full of magic or spells. It's magnificent. <laughs> And so I started to write poetry at 11 mm -hmm. um, and wrote it all throughout my teenage years and into my 20s and ever since. Um, I rarely showed it to anybody. Um, I showed it to a teacher once who took some of them 
And she started to go through it like it was homework, putting X's near some lines and saying, change that around. And it wasn't editing. Like, I had a poem of love to the night sky. And I said, I love when you, the night, is dark. Something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, she said, no, no, I love you when the night is dark. And I was like, oh, my God. How long must I be with you, old faithless <laughs> generation? <laughs> she was a nice teacher. But she just, I mean, she was, she was rushing yeah. through the work. You know, she was giving me extra time. But I just felt like you do yes. not appreciate my art. <laughs> but yes. I, um, so I didn't show it to many people because it never even occurred to me that poetry could be something that you do. Poetry for me was a way of survival. It was a way of life. It was a way in all the secrets of my life of being gay, working increasingly within really devout and kind and good and threatening Christianities. It was a way for me to survive mm. that and to have a secret confessional that wasn't judging me back. So um, I had so much poetry written by the time I was 30. And a publisher said, do you have much work done? I was like, oh, Lord. <laughs> and so then we started a process of um, publishing from there. And I realized mm-hmm. as life went by that poetry didn't have to be something that was peripheral to me, that in speaking about theology and speaking about conflict, the two areas that I'd done professional training, um, that poetry was very relevant in those. And poetry had a great audience in those too. So many people would come up afterwards to talk about the creativity involved in poems. So it seems like your love of words ties deeply into your sense of identity as well and also finding a place of healing, finding a place of expression where in other parts of your life, at one time you didn't have the freedom to express some of those thoughts. Tell me more about that. Yeah, place is very important. Um, Like our family go back, I don't know, hundreds of years maybe thousands of years in terms of where we're from, Cork and Kerry, you know, um, the very south coast, two counties there. Um, and being so from a place with a language and, and literature has given me a sense of being from here and being delighted when other people choose to move here for whatever reason. Um, for me, being located and loving the area doesn't come with a fear of having to protect it because the area and the language and the people have changed as the centuries have gone by. Um, So for me, particularity isn't something that has to be preserved with terrible fear. Particularity is something that people can be invited into and all kinds of diversities can be welcomed into a particularity and can change as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm thrilled Cork is where I'm from and Cork's um, ethnic population has changed enormously. At one point in the late uh, 1990s, I think one in 10 people in Cork City was Polish and What an interesting Mm -hmm. linguistic um, change for the community. How fantastic. Um, People were talking about it like it was new, but for God's sake, Irish people have been doing that to cities the whole world over for 200 years. (laughs) It's good for us to recognise the great brilliance that new arriving populations um, and settling populations bring to an area. Something you said made me think, at the same time, words have the power to hide as well as words have the power to reveal. Mm. And I know that in your work, even with some of the conflict resolution, which I'd, I'd love for you to explain more about what exactly it is that you do with conflict resolution and how your work as a poet ties into that work. But it fascinates me about the power of words to either reveal or to hide. 
Well, we see it all the time now. It's nothing new, but words are used for truth-telling as well as for truth-hiding. Um, to think about an old phrase, somebody as part of the colonial enterprises came up with the term the new world, which appealed to people's sense of exploration and discovery, so-called, as well as gave them a convenient clause to deny any bit of conscience that was there um, in terms of uh, this isn't a new world. This is a world as old as the world we're in. And there are peoples there who um, aren't new to themselves. Um, and they have their own sovereignty and their own land and languages, etc. So that's a way within which language is um, denying integrity. And I'm always interested in how language can push itself. And if language can be unafraid, well, then therefore a question isn't a problem. My studies in theology were really formed by studying Midrash, the Jewish process of asking questions within the text. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's like psychoanalysis before psychoanalysis, Freud before Freud, mm -hmm. and better than Freud, because it's not obsessed with penises. It asks over <laughs> and over again the question of power and asks what's going on here, why, and pushes the question and the definition of God and understands that if a question is good, it should be asked. And if somebody is resistant to a good question being asked, well, then they have to ask themselves some serious questions. And that for me is part of what language can do to itself, that language, if it's being used with integrity, has the capacity to ask the really or why or where question or what happened then or why like that or ask the question about who's the narrator here, what's happening. And so studying Midrash, I think, gave me both artistic curiosity about um, how to push a poem's text and to, to believe that language can be moved into integrity and vulnerability. And also then, when it comes to conflict, to ask questions and to not be afraid. Why did you just say that? You just used a word three times in two sentences. What an interesting poetic you're creating. So I have come to conflict resolution absolutely informed by the poem-making process that poets are involved with, placing word after word, line break, placing attention on repetition, on alliteration, all of these techniques that you'd have learned about in school. These techniques aren't the high lofty art of poetry and we ordinary mortals just go along here talking ordinary language. <laughs> it's the other way around. Ordinary mortals go along here saying the most extraordinary things without thinking about it. And poetry just pays attention and tries to mimic that when it can. And in conflict, especially when conflict is escalating, people say the most remarkable things. And it has been a very helpful thing to have the ears and curiosity of a poet and paying attention to people and, what, and the content of what they're saying when they're in conflict. The first word they use, the final word they use, the way that they place emphasis. Well, they put three words beginning with B after each other. Buh, buh, buh. We call that a plosive in, as we think about the music of sound and from which explosive comes from. And so plosive words are so explosive. They carry a lot of power and mm -hmm. you want to pay attention to that. And when you say to people, God, you just used the word bloody there. What an interesting word. And intrinsically, if you can do it without making people feel awkward, people will go, yeah, because, and then they'll have a whole drop down list of a reason why um, 
that word was the right one to use. Or they might correct themselves. And all of that is so interesting and so informative. In conflict resolution, you're taught that everything is information. And so when you're observing a conflict or you're within a conflict, the idea is to get to the level of seeing with curiosity and maybe even wonder some of the difficulties about what's happening in the place of conflict. And um, mm -hmm. the ears of poetics have helped me so much in that, to be curious about language mm -hmm. and then to pay attention. And always in a conflict situation, whether you're, I'm involved or whether I'm observing and mediating, you have to diminish the defensiveness, the ego that wants to rise up. But that's a human project that we'll be doing for the rest of our lives. I'd love to ask you now about your vocation as a theologian and how this ties together with your work as a poet. Because I see an immediate correlation in the example of the biblical prophets and how all the prophetic writings in the Bible are written at least partially in poetic form. And they're largely social commentary and reframing what was happening in the nation and in the world at that time. Mm -hmm. So I'd be fascinated to know how your work as a poet and your interest in theology comes together in your life. Uh, an education in theology has been a magnificent education in literature for me because you're studying poetry in ancient form, you're studying narrative, you're studying history, you're studying dreams in essence. Some of the apocalyptic literature is like you're stepping into a psychoanalysis session and you're looking at symbology, you're looking at meaning making, you're looking at the power and truth of myth. And this is the old stuff of all literary examination. You're looking at form, mm -hmm. you're looking at original language, you're looking at techniques used. And so that for me has been magnificent. Um, the often contemporary divisions about religion and Christianities especially might be divided between those people who take certain books of the Bible literally and other books of the Bible metaphorically. And ultimately that's a question about the quality of truth. And I'm really interested in that. In Carmilla there was there is a young boy, he's not so he's fourteen, fifteen now, but when he was about 10, I think, his teacher in class was a very devout Christian and she was talking about the miracle where Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes. And he put his hand up and said, I understand that as, um, you know, when Jesus, when that small boy came and was generous with what he had in his knapsack, that that inspired everybody else to be generous. And the miracle was the generosity rather than the magic. Do you know, I, I'm putting words into his mouth, but he said his own version of that. And the teacher was so upset, she sent him to the headmistress to be in trouble. And he is a very confident young fella and was bewildered. And he told his mother later on that night, who, and he knew the irony. He said, the irony is, is that I'm a 10-year-old, I'm a small boy getting in trouble for saying what I think about a small boy who said something <laughs> in the Bible. <laughs> and <Wow. laughs> he had gotten into the truth of the fact that the scandal isn't, is this true? Did this really happen or did this not happen? The question is, is how are we living out in response to that? What's the meaning made? And can we understand meaning in pluralities? For me, the interest in is 
what is gained from understanding that this is a metaphorical way within which generosity was evoked from people? And what is gained from understanding that this was something that was miraculous? And holding the two of them together from the literature, suspending them together and then thinking, what happens with all of these? Rather than being supremacist about, no, ours is right. Because then we go into old repeated patterns of the escalation of conflict, us and them, you can't be virtuous if you believe what you believe, you must be a fool if you believe what you believe, you can't even spell theology, you know, you can see the Twitter thread, (laughs) it all goes down. And it's awful. (laughs) And we do that so often. And so that's part of my interest in theology, because theology is constantly circling around. What are the shapes that truths come to us in? And they come to us in so many shapes. Mm-hmm. And the prophets, I loved the prophets. You know, they put words into the mouth of God, strong words, strange words. Very few of them were part of the formal group of Navi, the official prophets. They were farmers. They were people on the outside. They were strange people with strange habits saying strange things in public. And people probably wish they'd shut the hell up. <laughs> but we repeat them and we just think that somehow everybody was like, oh, there's Ezekiel. Isn't he amazing? I'm so glad we have a prophet. Instead of which, Ezekiel, Ezekiel was mad. <laughs> right. Oh my God. And and he was a poet of God. And yes. I think the idea that they were somehow accepted then is is really naive. They were complicated characters. Mm-hmm. And I think Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and the person who wrote the middle part of Isaiah, I think they'd have hated each other. Like, I don't think they're part of this harmonious chorus of singing the songs of God. I think they would have hated what they each did about each other. And somehow that's what the Bible mm-hmm. is, a collection of argument about the question of meaning, ethics, politics, borders, the immigrant, togetherness, change, all of these things, language, shapes for each other, rules about the other. That's what the Bible is, a a strange, disharmonious collection of those things all circling around the complicated question of narrative, poetry and God. Yes, That's very exciting. It is, very much so. (laughs) And therefore, learning that helped me in conflict resolution enormously to look at what does resolution mean? Resolution isn't we all agree on the same thing and we can all go, yeah, are those 20 drop down points? Absolutely. Resolution is something different. Resolution somehow is being together in a room where the energy we create together is creative rather than destructive. I love it. And that is what peace looks like. And it's difficult and you never arrive at it. You're always working at it instead. When I think of the scriptures in particular in the framework that we've just been talking about them, you're holding a lot of perspectives in tension. So many different time periods, so many different viewpoints being held in tension around some common themes and some common ground. And when I bring that forward to our modern day, especially here in America, you know, where language is is such a delicate thing right now. There's a lot of trigger language, a lot of triggering that the, the moment a particular word is spoken, uh, you've either shut down the conversation or you've blanketed it with a particular understanding. And so many different perspectives are not being held in tension right now. And I think the work that you're doing is very important for the healing in our own culture. Um, I was terrible at philosophy. I did my I did a Vatican undergrad in theology while John Paul II was Pope, and he had two PhDs in philosophy. As if one wasn't, you know, trouble enough. <laughs> and as a result, everybody in these pontifical courses had to do loads of philosophy, and I was awful at it. Awful. I only passed because I have a good memory, and I could 
repeat it like some kind of parrot. Um, but I never understood what it was on about. I'm much more narratively based and poetically based. But one of the things that did strike me, <laughs> one of the few things I remember from philosophy, is in contemporary deconstructionist philosophy, one of the techniques they use is to take a sentence to remove the capital letters and to pluralize every singular. So when I hear America, I think Americas, because there is more than one America. And that's part of the problem, I think, about what certainly on this side of the Atlantic, what we hear is that there's a kind of a, a rising tension and reaction against people telling the truth about one of the Americas. Because they want to go, no, that's not one of the Americas. This is the America. Do you know, the one where you work hard, the American dream, go. And privileges inherited are not such a thing. Everybody starts off on plain ground. And I think for some people that might have been true, but that's just one of the Americas. <laughs> <laughs> and the truth of that has probably created one of the other Americas. And I think Irish people were involved in one of those Americas in creating this myth of what's meaningful. And it's meaningful because it has worked for some people and they want it to work for everybody, maybe. But th that is a really interesting thing to look at when you think of America as plural. And if we could get, not, this isn't to me diagnosing America, but when it comes to other conflicts here, when I think about Ireland, I like to think of Ireland's and to recognize that there are plural Ireland's and what does it mean for those Ireland's to be spoken of and which of those Ireland's have been diminished and shut up because their voice rising would mean that another powerful voice would feel like they're about to be held in accountability. And that's a really important civic discourse to have. And for that, we need policy, mm -hmm. we need truth commissions, we need art, we need profits, we need the whole lot, you know? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I have a poem about this. It's called Postcards to the Center. Postcards to the Center. To the center from the edge. This circle is marked out by the dredges of your justice, and at these edge place ruts we eat the crusts of hope. Must this circle never end? Please, can we make a new shape, shaped a bit like you and shaped like me, shaped like how we think that things might be if things were not the way they've been? And yes, I know that that's a dreamer's dream. But sometimes dreams, like nightmares, can be real. To the center from the edge, we're still here. If you drown out all our voices, you will not drown out your fear. We're still here. Wow, beautiful. Well, I have one last question for you, and I'd love to know what you feel the responsibility of poets and artists is for our generation and how can we as poets and artists engage in conflict resolution through the arts in a more meaningful way? Hmm. It's always hard, I think, isn't it, to know what responsibility to put on art, which isn't to say that art doesn't have responsibilities, but it is also to recognize that art isn't utilitarian. Yes. That art isn't there to fit into a strategic plan of getting to somewhere. Art is a disruption. Art arrives at inconvenient moments. And in the midst of war, somebody paints something beautiful 
and that somehow is related to the war, but not because it's it's fanfaring itself, but because it's doing something different. It is finding a way to make something in the middle of things being unmade. And so I think what I would want to say to myself as an artist and and other artists who are listening to your work and gathering together in community is um, to continue to notice and to continue to make and to recognize that we are made by the things we make, that somehow art returns us back to us and therefore it's worthwhile taking risks, it's worthwhile pushing language, it's worthwhile asking questions about power and questions about um, ignorance and questions about assumptions and questions about appropriation in that because there is something better than those flimsy practices of assumption and um, projection and appropriation. Those will always fail us and art is really worthwhile being pushed, not because it's going to become more useful, but because art is good enough that it can be pushed. If there is a God, that God is worthy of being questioned. And there is art and art is really worthy of being questioned and pushed to. And the idea that an artist can control their own art, I think is something that does need to die because then we are just part of a strategic plan to repeat the same thing. And what we're looking at is what is art doing through me and discovering along the way. I loved that part of your interview with Lanisha where she was saying she doesn't quite know where she's going when she's doing something. She brings all the skill and all the dedication and all the time and all the focus. And then she brings a trust and a risk to it. And I think that is so important when it comes to all forms of art. Padraig, thank you so much for joining me on Makers and Mystics. You've given me so much to think about and I have enjoyed our conversation thoroughly. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and leave us a kind review on iTunes. If you'd like to support the production of these podcasts, please visit us at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. Music for this episode is provided by v We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.